welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry and social justice. Hello, this is James and welcome to the podcast. And just before we start, I want to take a moment to acknowledge the difficult situation we find ourselves in as we respond to the global coronavirus pandemic. We know that isolating is easier for some than others, and we think about all of those who find themselves trapped or confined in very difficult circumstances. We very much appreciate you taking time to listen to the podcast, and we hope that you are managing to stay safe and well. So this week we are sharing the audio from our first town hall panel discussion. Mad in America, Open Excellence and the Hope and Dialogue Project have collaborated to create an ongoing series of town hall discussions exploring the challenges, learnings and opportunities for personal and societal growth found through dialogical responses to crisis in the age of COVID-19. The title of this first discussion is Are We Living in the Most Dialogical Time Ever? And the hosts are Kermit Cole and Louisa Putnam. Our next panel discussion will be held on Friday, May 1st, 2020, and you can register by visiting maddenamerica.com, and all the discussions will be available to view on Madden America's YouTube channel. Hello. On behalf of Madden America and the Hope and Dialogue Project and Open Excellence, uh, formerly known as the Foundation for Excellence in Mental Health Care, Louisa Putnam and I, Kermit Cole, we would like to welcome you to a discussion about how dialogue, and in particular what we call dialogical practice, uh, has been helping in this time of crisis. A few weeks ago, or recently, the UN stated that the world is in the most dire crisis that it's faced since the Second World War. Louisa and I are proud to welcome so many of the wonderful people that we've met in the search that we've been uh, on for many years now for the best ways of responding to people in a time of crisis. And here we are with the world in crisis. And we'd like to have a discussion about the ways that the, the way that our uh, colleagues and friends that we have, that we're so pleased and proud to be with here have been responding and how they know their other colleagues have been responding and what we've been learning uh, about how to respond to crisis and what we've been learning about how dialogical responses are useful at this time and what the opportunities are for us to do more of the same in the future. And I'd like to introduce Andrea Zwicknagel. Uh, Andrea is a peer support worker and an open dialogue uh, mobile crisis team in Interlaken, Switzerland. She's a part of the Swiss Hearing Voices Network and is a member of the Hope and Dialogue Project, which is one of the sponsors, one of, one of the uh, partners in this project and the advisory board, right? And Ray, Ray Waddingham uh, is also an open dialogue practitioner and an international trainer and has experienced, experienced establishing a range of innovative hearing voices projects including projects for youth in prisons, uh, forensic projects, and in inpatient and community contexts. Isolt Twamli is a clinical psychologist and an open dialogue trainer and supervisor and the clinical head of the Irish Open Dialogue Implementation Project in West Cork. Uh, she credits her involvement with the Hearing Voices Network and Trialogues with challenging her previous education and ethics and continues to seek opportunities to hear and learn from non-professional sources of wisdom. Uh, Richard Armitage 
is a dialogical practitioner and trainer in Denmark. He began working with Open Dialogue in 2005 while training in relational and network approaches to family therapy with Tom Anderson, uh, where he met the, the final member of our panel, Jaco Sekula. Uh, Jaco is one of the founders of Thank Open you. Dialogue, uh, the response to people in mental, mental health distress that is receiving so much attention around the world right now and uh, for its superior outcomes in responding to first episode psychosis, among many other things, uh, and also for the beauty and simplicity that its principles bring to what otherwise can be dark times. Uh, and we're proud to be with you. We've done so much to help the world so far. Uh, we've come together to discuss how the work that drew us together, dialogical and network-based approaches, such as the Hearing Voices Network, uh, is helping in the crisis now, and what we can learn uh, from the work that we're doing at this time and how we can build on what we're learning to help make it more available to people that need it in the future. Uh, before we start the discussion, we'd like to help put us in the context of the crisis that we are in right now by meeting someone who's supporting frontline workers at this moment. Uh, she is, in fact, available. Uh, she is working in a, uh, a hospital supporting uh, the medical staff as in the work that they're doing. This is in London. Hello, it's so nice to see all of you. Thank you for coming. <laughs> so this is um, the staff respite centre that um, we've been donated space um, by the Wellcome Trust. And this is one of the staff wellbeing rooms that I'm in at the moment, which has space for staff just to come and be, but also to take part in some mindfulness exercises which range from things like origami and colouring to kind of sensory um, aspects as we've had a lot of donations of lotions and things like that um, but also to have some relaxation sessions mindfulness sessions to drop in and talk to myself and other colleagues that are supporting staff right now within the trust um, outside which unfortunately I can't take you at the moment, um, there's eating space. It's a really beautiful space where people can just come. I think like table tennis there as well, but mostly it's just for relaxing and taking time away from the hospital sites um, and getting some free food, some nutrition, and being able to just have a break and uh, meet some basic needs, essentially. So, And it's a nice space to be able to do that. Lisa, I had heard you say that you at least two weeks ago, we're working 12-hour days, seven days a week. I'm wondering where, what is the ethos now at this time in London? Yeah, so it's, we've, we've plateaued a little bit in some respects. So for me, um, it was unusual. I've been very lucky in that I haven't had to work long shifts and over weekends for a very long time. And I've been very privileged to, to be able to work like that. Um, but because we were trying to mobilise so much support for staff and to make sure staff really knew that there was support out there in so many different levels, um, trying to keep on top of all of it was quite difficult and trying to mobilise lots of different psychologists, lots of different therapists in across several different hospitals, uh, you know, multiple teams that have all very different needs because they're involved in different levels of the COVID pandemic. And trying to think about all of that 
Um, it was taking up a lot of my time to be physically present here for people on site um, and then to be dealing with the strategic side of this. But I've had a great team around me, my other workforce colleagues that have helped with that. So I've not been alone in that, but all of us, I think, have been pulling together to ensure that every level of staff needs is being thought about in the short term, but also long-term planning because... You know, this it's felt like a bit of a sprint, but I think what everyone's realised is that it's a marathon. And, you know, once lockdown is done, that doesn't suddenly mean COVID goes away. And actually going into what might be a physical recovery phase, I think psychologically will become our core phase for the next few years. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to think about as a society, but also as an organisation. And definitely from a psychological point of view, of what can we put in place, what should be put in place to make sure we encourage psychological safety and embed that across um, all of our teams. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for zooming in. I hope you can stay. I know you're working today, so you may not be. I, I am on duty, but I'm hoping to stay and hear um, some of my fellow dialogical practitioners, um, but I might be in and out. But it was really lovely to see you, and I'm happy to answer questions or come back if I wonder if you can say how your dialogical training has come in sort of the work that you're doing now yeah sure I mean I think for me um having you know spent the last six years and most recently going over to Finland and training with Yako's team it taught me a lot about myself and how I react in situations of being able to sit with what is being triggered within me has really helped me think about what will come up for others and how to help with that. And I'd already been working quite dialogically at a local level with teams, but also kind of within the hierarchy because we are a very hierarchical um, organisation, the NHS in general, and, um, and looking at how you can be dialogical um, to get some of these ideas across and how they can be useful and how, because it's a needs adapted approach, how you can take elements of it and put it together with other things that we know work. And talking to so many different um, people at so many different levels and so many different disciplines and thinking about how you can bring everyone into the table and have space for all voices and that polyphony and being able to hold that. I think that has been really vital for me in just being able to mobilize as much of what I've done as being able to go in and have everybody as my network and collaborate and I really hope that this will continue long term and we can embed some of this and the great connections that we've made um, can be maintained albeit probably in a very different way but I think it's a really great opportunity to show just that if you can can allow space and time for all voices to be heard and for great progress to be made Thank you so much. That's wonderful. So we'll we'll call on you if if we need to. And please, thank you for coming. It's lovely to see you. Thank you for having me. Take care, everyone. Okay. So uh, thank you, and uh, I hope we'll be reflecting on that a bit as we as we talk. Thank you all for coming. Um, so we'd like to have a dialogue uh, with uh, five of you uh, for about forty five minutes. And after which we'll have 20 minutes to take questions from the audience, reflections, comments, questions. Uh, and uh, then about, uh, and then we'll have about 15 minutes to uh, have reflection for the panel to have reflections and wrap up.
Uh, Bob Whitaker is in the chat room and we'll be collecting questions uh, to send for us to ask. And um, so I'd like to start by asking Yako, you, a lot of the inspiration for this event actually started with um, a Facebook post of yours in which you said, uh, you suggested that we might be, we might just be living in the most dialogical time ever. Um, could you, could you say about more about what you mean by that? Uh, it was a bit surprising uh, observation to me myself also, perhaps only some sentences about how do I understand dialogue. For me, dialogue is the basic of human life. Or there are two bases of human life. The one is that when we come to work, we need to learn to create. And at the same time, in the very beginning of our life, when we come to this world, we need to be in dialogue. And without not being able to be in dialogue, so we will die. And that's what the newborn babies have as a kind of innate, uh, let's say, biological capacity. And it's an amazing idea. So that there are only two things for, 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 for life when we become the baby needs to make initiatives to have response. And in that way, to verify that she's part of the human human uh, resources and human life on the, on the whole. And uh, so the baby needs another one to have a response from, from, from the other one. And that is my basic understanding of the dialogues on the whole. It's much more than communication. It's a basic idea of being involved and being in need of response from the others. And then coming to this uh, coronavirus, I was very surprised when I was, uh, I, I'm also connected in many people in many countries and, and listening of their experiences, how they feel. And of course, this is a catastrophe. This is a catastrophe that we never had seen in human life. And there is nothing to be admire or, or romanticize. This is a terrible situation for humankind. But people... So surprisingly saying that when they are in isolation, they say, okay, of course, I don't like this, but uh, I have to live this life. And, and, and they seem to say, say that they are, they are quite peaceful. They have come down to their stress. They sleep better. And they have been sharing something in the families that they did not share before. And I was very surprised of these comments hearing at the same time knowing that isolation also may increase violence within family with all the bad incomes. And then I thought that what has happening now is that one prerequisite for dialogue is that there is an uncertainty. And, and, uh, and uh, what is happening in our lives at the moment that uh, there is uncertainty all over. At the time of life, when we are used to think that we have to have a control of everything. And now all of a sudden, all humankind is in a situation in which we do not have control of anything. We really are all facing the uncertainty. The experts do not have solution to the coronavirus. They need each other. The politicians do not know how to survive the societies to collapse. They need to be in collaboration with each other in all different ways that in, in, in the core. And the countries need each other much more than, than, than any, 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 way, any other way before. And we as normal citizens, we really need to tolerate this situation. And that was my 
idea that actually in a very paradoxical way, we are living perhaps the most dialogical episode in humankind because we have to share. We all are sharing the same experience wherever we live. And this is new. This is to the big boss of the societies, even Donald Trump or, or whoever, he, he, he is in need for, for, for other ones. And we, we are sharing the same kind of uncertainty how to go on. And that, that was simply my idea to think further about. And, and what is the conclusion about it? It's not to have a celebration about this. This is the most ever dialogical time. But it is to think that it opens up perhaps a possibilities for us humans to survive this situation. And it's done if we manage to have more dialogical ways in building up communication via internet and, and so on. So this was my simple idea behind this phrase. I'd like to invite thoughts from the panel. I, I found myself... Also surprised when uh, Luisa, you sent Diaco's uh, Facebook post out to us, uh, and I was trying to digest this idea of, of the most dialogical time ever. Uh, so I think I, like I suppose many people, mostly have, have just felt really overwhelmed uh, by the enormity of, of what has happened and the enormity of, of what hasn't happened. Uh, and what might happen. Uh, so I, I appreciated this this reminder of of uh, the possibility to look at at what 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 could come out of this. I think that uh, I'm in in Denmark in a country which has been uh, I suppose very fortunate. Uh, we've uh, had a very low rate of infection, uh, and uh, the early shutdown has meant that it's been quite a mild shutdown. We, we've not had the kind of uh, severe restrictions that have been in other countries, and things seem to be working quite well. Uh, so um, I've continued to, to go to, to, to work on a daily basis in my place of work, which is a, a, a kind of uh, supported living space for people who have been connected to uh, psychiatric services for or bound to them for a very, very long time. And a lot of them are saying, okay, so we usually feel isolated and we usually feel scared. Um, this is not really much different. Um, it's it's you that's experiencing something different now. It's, it's, it's uh, maybe your crisis. Uh, and what we found that we were doing uh, because of the uh, measures that had been taken was that uh, we were continuing to uh, enforce some kind of restriction of freedom for the benefit of the other person. This is what we're all uh, accepting everywhere around the world at the moment. And again, the people that, that I'm seeing at, at work are saying, well, that's what you're doing to us all the time. Uh, come again with something new. So uh, for my focus in, in that has very much been uh, how can we continue to 
to have a worthwhile dialogue in these in these circumstances. I had no uh, idea of, of, of new possibility in that, but just how on earth to continue. Uh, so looking at, at, at Yakko's post was um, really a, a challenge to, 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 to think, I think, out of that, that little bubble. So I, I, I very much appreciate that and I look forward to, to hearing more from, from everyone here. For me, it's maybe personal, the most dialogical time ever from my home. I live in a very remote little village in Switzerland, in the mountains, in a valley. Um, and uh, sometimes I find it difficult to go out and travel two hours to get to some city or something else to meet people. And suddenly I can stay at home and so many people are coming to me via Zoom or the telephone or whatever. And um, I'm really in peace with that. And what resonated with me was really that uh, I talked to quite a many people who have experienced crisis before and who are now, it's this welcome in my box for the rest of the world. We are familiar with this. A friend of mine told me about her son and he said, hey mom, what's about quarantine? I do this for more than three years now all the time. And there were more quotes like that. Um, and I think that brings us a little bit closer together. And I hope we can learn from each other more now. Uh, it's really hard to know where to start with this because everything everyone has said, including Lisa, there's been so many thoughts that have come to mind. But I think if I go back to this idea that Yako raised around what is dialogue, um, for me, I hear that idea of response. But I've become really interested in this period of lockdown in England um, where we're not meant to really leave the house um, except for essential <laughs> purposes. Um, just the sense of the space between us. Um, it's really strange to me. Um, that I'm becoming ever more conscious of the space between me and other people. Sometimes I felt as if people are in another universe because I don't see them physically. We're not in the same room. But then I've had some really amazing uh, Zoom conversations that have felt like these people who are literally <laughs> in another country are uh, as close as family. This idea of distance and space is being played with in my head a little bit. And I guess I've noticed this sense of, in myself, of wanting to connect with people, but wanting to distance from people. It's Again, everything just seems very fluid, very kind of hard to grab a, a hold of. Um, uncertain, but not in a negative way. But there is... Whilst I feel there's so much potential for dialogue right now, in England I'm noticing also some hardening. Um, sometimes when we see someone in our trip outs, we cross the road to avoid them and we nod and we acknowledge and there's a sense of togetherness. Uh, I went out today to the shops and I noticed also reactions from people as if I'm threatening their air, you know, this sense of wanting to stay away from people. Um, that connections are dangerous. 
and and kind of this more intolerance to people that are maybe being seen to do the wrong thing for the community. And so it, it's like, yeah, people have joined me in my beautiful isolation as a mad person, but there's almost a new them and us, <laughs> the ones who are doing the right thing for the community and the bad people that are having house parties and or, or going out three times a day. And I'm just noticing that as well, which feels, hmm, interesting. You know, I've been... I've been listening, thinking, do I do I have something wise to contribute? But what comes first actually is something that happened last week. My 11-year-old had a birthday party on Zoom. And this was very new. They were all coming in. And I don't normally get to listen to their conversations, but I was helping them with the technology. And all they talked about for three quarters of an hour was, I can see you now. No, now I can't see you. Can you hear me? We can hear you. And actually, I think, I thought to myself, I think that is very dialogical. Because, in fact, what they were doing was hearing and being with each other. Um, it was it was all about togetherness, finding some way of being together in this separation. And... Um, and, and I think that I'm beaming in from rural Ireland and we're under lockdown, uh, like many of us around the world. And th this challenge of how we can be together while separate. And I think that for me that, as sort of I think Yako was saying, roots for me as well, when we are with each other in crisis, how can we be together in it? And how can we hear all the different voices? One of the things that's happening in my country is that the people who are becoming unwell are mostly in care homes, already a little bit separate. And one in four of them are healthcare workers as well, often low paid care assistants. And I guess I'm thinking that for this to be, for us to take up the challenge of this being the most dialogical time, we're being asked to see how we can listen to all the voices and stay in the uncertainty, not moving too quick to the answers and the judgment. Um, yeah, and I think that's, that's a really exciting prospect and I think it's a really challenging one. I, I like all the comments that I have heard so far. The thing that the Richard said that it's very difficult to start to make a kind of celebration in this time that this is the most dialogical ever. And, uh, and, uh, and of course, this is the case that there are terrible stories that people are facing in, in many ways. But at the same time, uh, the idea of, uh, of dialogue has become evident, as Andrea said. I've, 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 I've spoken with one pupil in the school who, because of her problem, has been isolated for two years from her friends, having her school in the, in, at home. And she said that uh, this is amazing. I got new friends because now my schoolmates has contacted and said that now, now they understand how you have it. I've, I've, I've heard of some person who had uh, psychotic uh, problems herself saying that uh, 
now I feel much more normal than than any other because because we all are facing the same idea. This is for me exactly the point that we are sharing something, and when we share something, we share of course something in our conscious minds, but perhaps more in in, in my body is some feeling, sensing without words, without uh, idea to how do I put this into a story? How do I control of everything in this? And I really need to be contacted with the, with this other. And also the a bit amazing part that when we have this, uh, this system of uh, internet, very tiny connection to other humans being, but of course the importance becomes gigantic compared to the everyday conversation. We may have one two meeting a day and its importance is huge. So we really invest ourselves in a new way in all the communications that we are we have been involved involved before. And perhaps the last comment so far is that uh, actually for for open dialogue, this is not a new case because open dialogue started to be developed in the most severe human crisis. And as a surprise, kind of uh, kind of miraculous change started to happen in the life of the people when we managed to have a dialogical meetings. And this is, of course, again in my mind that uh, I don't know what are the solutions, but there may be more options to be connected with uh, people, with all of us, but of course with people in need more help than other in in this time in a, in a dialogue biological way without introducing a solution that this is how we should do or this is how you should do. I think just the last couple of words you said, Yako, really um, struck me. This sense um, about without a solution. Um, I think it's come up a few times, but that's the biggest thing for me in this. Um, is that there is no single solution. Um, there's no, whilst we're all sharing this massive experience, we're all experiencing it quite differently. Um, there's people who feel that, yay, I'm opening up, people are joining my world as someone who's isolated. And then someone else, like I'm isolated and I'm like, back off world it, you know it's it's very different um but also the kind of solutions that people might come to together seem to be very diverse i've seen some really creative things happen um on social media there's the pandemic uh hashtag which is where people are just sharing drawings <laughs> um it's fantastic um there's a hardship fund that mad people have set up for mad people to give people 30 pounds to pay their electricity you know just tiny acts of reaching out across the void <laughs> and it's not like we can look to the big scientist for the answer at the moment it's just like in psychosis or other distress it's not the big doctor the big person that comes in knowing there's just lots of little tiny bridges that we're trying to build and that's really painful because it's sometimes nicer to have I'd like the big scientists to come along right now and fix this but there's going to be many 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 tricky ways forward 
I'm, I'm also waiting for the big scientists to have a solution. But at the same, uh, and of course, because I know that there are people who, who, who pay with their life of all this. But at the same time, I, I have an idea in my mind that uh, perhaps taking some more time to find the solution would be better for the future. So that we do not, uh, we do not uh, make a kind of mistakes that we perhaps should pay even even more. And again, in this kind of situation, we really need each other much more than ever. For me, Ray, it was interesting that this somehow changed. In the beginning, everybody was uh, waiting for the government to make lockdown rules and decision, and it was really the leaders. And this took some days. And then really, really, people got creative and made their own decisions within these rules. For example, at my job, at the Open Dialogue team, there was one person who said, oh, my husband is a high-risk person. I really want to stay at home. I do everything via telephone. Um, and the other colleague is working with families. And, he, and she said, oh, they really need me now. I don't know what is happening there. Other people don't go and visit them. I will do that. I've talked to the boss. It is possible, so I will do that. And that was interesting for me, that there are these different ways of finding out the space between the limitations. Perhaps I could just pick up a little bit. Ray, Ray, Ray you used the word, the, 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 the different experiences that people have, have, uh, are having everywhere. And of course, they're, they're, they're hugely different. Um, and I'm thinking of, of uh, Isolt's story of, of your, your, your daughter's birthday party with this kind of uh, attention to, to how is... How are we talking together? What's happening in this relation while we're talking? Um, one thing which which I've noticed is that in a uh, an environment uh, which usually is is very hectic, things have have become really much much more calm, uh, and not because people in the environment aren't feeling great disquiet. They are, uh, but. I think something happens with the distancing uh, that um, there's actually also uh, a new possibility to to see people a little better at a distance sometimes, uh, especially if you're used to seeing people in a particular way, then that distance allows you to, to see anew. Uh, so one thing which I notice happening uh, at the moment is is um, a, a greater attention to difference and to otherness and to what this person want is, is is not the same as what I'm thinking or imagining that that attention to otherness is uh, is being actually supported by by this idea of distancing which is uh, a, a, a really um, thrilling idea in how, how could that be used that uh, Together while separate, you said, Isolt. I'm thinking that uh, this idea of, of togetherness is, is actually dependent on seeing that we're separate. <laughs> and that's that's really being helped just now. Uh, and I, I noticed it having an effect on, on, on something around me. Something in it really connects for me, um, actually, what you're talking about. 
this capacity to start maybe being open to seeing things slightly differently connects to this principle and open dialogue of immediate help. That actually there's something about being present in the space, in the immediacy of crisis, which if we can go slowly in this immediate crisis rather than rush to answer, very typically, um, certainly in adult mental health services where I've worked, that's been where my, my, my professional life has been. When there's been a crisis, there's been an, an expectation or a demand from the system and sometimes from the people who are accessing the service for an immediate solution, uh, immediate action. And one of the things that has been really powerful for me in the dialogical work is that we are immediately present, but we slow down. And something about that space where we can be present to how we are being in the way that you are much more articulately than myself expressing and explaining, <laughs> Richard. Um, but when we are in the crisis moment, rather than roughing, roughing, rushing to a, an action orientation, but being in a witness, a togetherness orientation, we can start to question how, how we are together and what might be helpful. Um, yeah, so there, there's something I think for me in in that. Can we can we stay in this space of presence and openness so that we can start to question potentially how we got here and how we might more usefully move forward? Is uh, is that the point in which we really need connection? So that instead of being isolated, in which we really start to make a kind of uh, more or less silly ideas about the reality, about the solutions. But in exactly at that point, we need to be connected and share and make questions all all together. And for me, in, this is why it's so important that I really would recommend that all the therapists, all the people who are working would find the ways to be connected with the people who need help from them in via internet, via Skype, with Zoom meetings. Because I think that uh, it's not only to survive this situation that we do not meet face in face, but it also may introduce new kind of possibilities because people are living in different kind of experiences at their homes. And when living in different kind of experiences at their homes, the meeting for instance, with my therapist, which I could have in, 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 in a through Skype meeting, would have much more importance than we than we realize. And, and, and it's also so important that all, all, all of us who are introducing help for other people really are active in this in in this way. I kind of I got a bit lost in my head at that point. I think because I was still hanging on to something that Isolt was saying and then I was going, and then I suddenly got drawn into my helping, how do I be with other people? So I was I was caught between the sense of being with what it what it is to to go through this crisis and then how do I use this within my work? And they were jostling for privacy, for for yeah. They were they were battling a little bit, and that's kind of what I found throughout these three weeks. The first week, um, I spent half of my time obsessively on the news feed, trying to work out what was going on. 
and the other half trying to volunteer and do. Um, and I signed up for so many things. <laughs> but act, but not be still. Um, then I got frozen. <laughs> and there's something about this enforced uh, solitude, this lockdown, and that in England our structures suck. So these volunteer opportunities and the things, they're very hard to, to get going um, on the big scale. The government ones are not good. <laughs> um, the local ones are much better. But it's left me um, actually facing that my first response to this crisis was action, not the stillness that Isolt spoke of. I wanted to do and help and be with. Um, and what's really helped me, I think, is this structure of not being able to do, of like forced inaction almost, has helped me go back inside myself and listen a bit deeper, um, think more about the otherness. Um, yeah, now I've started to do community things. I'm starting to get back. But it makes me wonder, so in a crisis, in an open dialogue network meeting, um, we have our structure as practitioners that I think can help me find that stillness. And hopefully the network can find that too. But it's this dance between structure and fluidity, uncertainty and certainty that feels um, synonymous. Is that a word? It feels like an echo of the process for me. Ray, do you mean an, an echo of the process in general or of the process of these last three weeks that we experience now? Probably all of that. Um, mm. It's interesting. I'm seeing layers. So there's what happens in the room. There's what happens in training, what happens um, within the last three weeks in this process now. But yeah. It just seems to echo all over for me. You know, when you, something comes to mind, sometimes you see it everywhere. But I don't know if it rings true for others. Thank you. There's something coming up for me as you're talking, Ray. Um, one of the things that I have enjoyed that drew, that drew me into uh, the dialogical work is there's a potential but not complete given the structures we're working in, but a potential disruption of helper and helpy in, 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 in the relationships. And I think one of the things that's been quite interesting, because part of what I do is I, I supervise mental health professionals. And I've had a lot in the last few weeks of people telling me, I want to be able to help, but I don't know what I should do. And, and this is a situation in which we are all, uh, Maybe it disrupts this even further. I think that's a healthy thing, actually. And one of the things I may be a little bit wary of is that we position ourselves too much, or I, I position myself too much, as someone who should be helping in this situation, as opposed to a collaborator, collaborator a, a co-construction um, of, 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 of this network that we're all part of. I, I think that, that for, for many people... Um, their experience of, of something called dialogue is the conversation which they're allowed to participate in after a decision has been taken, um, which uh, might be a valuable conversation, but, but also a very, very reduced uh, 
idea of what dialogue might be. And I, I think that what um, I'm, I'm hearing uh, you talk about is, and, and maybe also Ray is, is, is what kind of conversation can be had before the decision, so that so that so that we are genuinely working together, finding a way rather than uh, relating to something which is is being imposed from from some kind of other position. Uh, and maybe maybe that's what is um, uh, being a part of, of of these strange and mixed up times uh, is is that we, we are able to, to find that more easily at the moment in some ways. Uh, but what is confusing is that it's all ar arising out of this enormous imposition of something coming from the outside. <laughs> uh, it, it makes it all very unclear. I'd like to share uh, an experience I'm having at the moment. Um, and I'd, I'd compare it to the experience of hearing uh, a reflecting team uh, reflecting on, on me or something I've said, is uh, seeing myself, seeing Louisa and I up on the screen in an equal frame uh, with all of you who we admire and respect and love so much. Um, actually, uh, it changes my sense of self. Uh, I feel that I have a place in things. I feel that, that I'm called, called in a way that uh, when I'm just looking out at the world, it's hard sometimes to feel that I'm equal to, uh, feel that I'm a part. Uh, so I'm having a very pleasant experience to that uh, of seeing myself here right now. And I'd like to extend that to the rest of the audience, uh, that we're all in this together, uh, that one of the things that's coming out of all this is an unavoidable awareness that none of us is, that, that we're all called to be part of this, that we we're all, none of us is unaffected and all of us are necessary. Um, and so I hope everybody that's participating uh, and watching can feel that, can feel that we are doing this together. And with that in mind, uh, I'd like, I wonder if you would like to ask the audience, um, the other participants in this dialogue, what kind of questions you might like to hear from them. Yeah, so people can go to the Q&A icon at the bottom of their screen and and... See how it feels to write a question, and then we'll be reading. Kermit and I'll be reading those and bringing them to the panelists. While we're waiting, while we're waiting for them to come in, if any of you have any further thoughts or reflections about the dialogue so far, that would be that would also be good. I was uh, I, I was thinking about what Richard said uh, in the last point that how different it is to be part of dialogue before the decisions and after the decisions, and uh, I think that those those experiences that some people have said that now I feel much more normal than 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 before because we are in the same misery we are sharing the same situation so that we all are now in a situation in which we do not yet have the decisions. And in a way, we are, of course, we, we are not in the places to make the quick decisions, but of course, we are in the place in which we may participate in dialogue in decisions in our lives more than, more, more than 
before. And, and, and one point more, this is a bit out, out of this topic, but uh, when I'm looking, all of you coming from different countries, we all are from different countries, unfortunately all from Europe, but Europe is the biggest mess at the moment in the world. Uh, I know more than ever about, uh, about uh, Switzerland, about UK, about Denmark, and, and so, so, so that we, we know all the discussion, what has been done concerning this this, this, so, so that in that way we also share the politics around the world, what is happening in different countries. I would just, um, while you're working out some of the questions, add something that struck me, I think, as you were talking, Yaka and, and Richard, that the difference between this situation and what gets called my psychosis um, is that in this situation, I went to the shops and told my friend I felt guilty for taking air and for breathing. And my friend went, yeah, <laughs> I know what you mean. Whereas in what gets called psychosis, um, there is no yeah. There's a sense of distance expanding as people withdraw from the weirdness of what I'm saying. It feels almost like there's an acceptance in this that it's weird and messed up and that we can respond to it in lots of ways. And that's what dialogue feels like, because we're actually really listening, hopefully, to each other. Whereas I think with psychosis and other extreme states, people can find it very hard to listen. They can jump to, is it true? Is it not? What do I need to do? So this enforced kind of solidarity. Uh, yeah, it's helped me understand this sense of what makes psychosis so dif difficult for other people. We, yeah, we're still waiting for questions. I have a question uh, to Ray. You said it can be not listening. I wonder if it can also be just being overwhelmed by listening, overwhelmed by hearing, uh, you know, just an overwhelming sensitivity to the dialogue uh, that surrounds us. Does that make any sense? It probably doesn't, but I'm hearing it in lots of different ways. So can you say a bit more so I can, can understand better? Well, I just I wonder if it's if what can appear to be not listening can also be uh, so so profoundly listening that it's hard to know how to respond. Yeah, I think it can be all of that and more. Um, it's and it, it's not just to what is said, but if someone like myself is in an extreme state, it can be the body that is overwhelming others the movements, you know, the tone of voice, it's not just the words. So, yeah, I think it can be an overwhelm and a fear. And then sometimes people listen too much and become too close. It's a, there's a lot going on. I think Richard spoke to that earlier about how the, the, there's a way that the distancing that we're experiencing is allowing some people to join the conversation that we may have had a, a more difficult time. So this is from uh, Bob Whitaker uh, for the entire panel. Where can we find out about dialogical therapies in our home countries? As far as I know, more than 20 or about 25 countries all over the world have some type of training in open dialogue and, and of course, a bit more of dialogical practice in general. So there, there are a lot of uh, people with their own lived experience with psychotherapists and also psychiatrists who really have started to apply this 
in the in the in the work, but uh, but uh, but uh, but how to how to find the connection? Sort of, I, I, I don't know how to do it in in different countries. I would um maybe suggest that after this we can share um, perhaps on the event page maybe some links to um, say the international dialogic websites. There's lots of them. Um, because it really is happening in lots of different countries. And so even if it's not happening in yours, there'll probably be a neighbour country that's getting something going. And dialogue, there's open dialogue, but then there's a big tradition of dialogic work that goes beyond the mental health system that we can draw on. So perhaps that's an easier one just to share some links and maybe books. We can probably all come up with something. We'll definitely do that. We'll also see if we can get a link up on the chat room right now. And maybe this situation also can be a chance that people uh, are practicing dialogue and Zoom and things like that. And so people can get support, not only in their own country, in their own town, but also in other ways. But I think that maybe might develop somehow. A, a global warm line. Yes. <laughs> Tom Benwell is asking, Yako, do you have an idea how to use uh, this period, uh, to use this dialogical period uh, to make it, uh, how to make it more concrete? I think that means how to make the dialogue more concrete or dialogism more concrete. I think that, uh, that of course, it's uh, perhaps that was also one of my motivations that I, I, I wanted to share my thought about this dialogical way, that we would make it more open, that we would take an attitude that, that, that we really want to be involved and, uh, and being involved and sharing there is a possibility. And, of course, this is what we have learned in the open dialogue practice. We do not need to have an agenda how to go on. But to be available for people, it's it's a it's a huge thing to do, and how to be available for people. Of course, there may be there may be many 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 ways to do it, but uh, but uh, a kind of a change of attitude. For instance, in Finnish newspaper, I I I saw a psychoanalyst writing a kind of how do you call it in English? You can write in newspaper some comments. And his comments was very dark, so that uh, all the bad things that happens for humans in this kind of situations, and uh, all the bad things that the media is doing in these situations, and uh, and so on, and uh, and uh, and of course you can refer to bad things, but at the same time you can find a find a, a, a kind of way to become more connected than before. There's a question that's been asked, um, and I'm going to quote the question. Is it possible to heal a family member with an open heart and allowing space, or is more needed, i.e. therapy or other options? Can home healing possibly be enough? I think that 90, 95% of all the problems in the world are solved in home, home healing with open heart, with giving support and, 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 and so on. In some situations, you really need uh, uh, professionals or someone outside to support, but the process is very same, to be dialogue, to be open, to, to, to generate sharing. Jakob, when I hear you saying that, I'm thinking about the network approach and 
whether, you know, we haven't, uh, Ray mentioned it, but maybe somebody could speak to that a little bit, that possibly that, the of course, the home is it can be a healing environment, but sometimes we need to draw in more relatives or neighbors or to, to make the container stronger. I don't know if I'm going to speak to your point, Louisa, but one of the points that I was thinking was, I think homes can be very healing, um, but I would maybe, I wonder if there's ever just one person who needs healing and, and whether there's a position about what is happening for all of us here together in this. Um, I, I think, yeah, it, it's rare that one person needs healing and everybody else. I, th I think that can be one way that we can end up understanding it. But I've found it so much more generative to imagine that all of us are being healed in some way by the presence, which can also include the open dialogue professional facilitators. Yeah. If I may add to that, I, I think of one of the, one of the um, principles, I think, uh, happens in the dialogical process and the open dialogue process is, of course, starting with respect for the experience of the individual, but then part of the process is raising that experience to the next level of social, socially held um, reality. So whatever that is, if it's an individual, then maybe you're raising it to the level of a couple or, or raise, raising it to the level of the individual and the therapist, but then uh, raising it to the level of a family. Uh, so if you're working with a family, there comes, I think, a point where you're raising it to the level of how this experience fits into the world and maybe even bringing in others into the process so that that experience, so that the people who have been in that crisis now know uh, that their experience is shared by others. So I think it's a constant process of expanding the network, basically. That was very important comments, Paul, that you made, Kermit, and it showed and made me think about the idea that many times, let's say this idea of home healing, there is all too much attempt to change one person in the family. And uh, that makes it very difficult in some very severe situation to, to have all the openness, the open hardness to function. And if that can be changed, that there is more acceptance to the other without conditions that opens a door a lot. I, th I love that idea of who is being he healed and what does healing mean? Um, because if we're saying that someone needs healing, we're saying I think that someone is broken or there's a crack somewhere and who gets to say what that is? Um, I think the challenge of, of home healing is that if we're all in a situation together, it can be so overwhelming that that stillness we talked about in the first part can just be absent. In fact, sometimes it can be really toxic, damaging or abusive things going on that just need something else. Sometimes this enforced separation to a respite or somewhere where people can have space between and then decide if they want to come back together to have dialogue or actually if they don't. And it's other people that need to be involved in that healing. Um, I think there's no rule. There's just a sense of coming and meeting with people and seeing what is it that has 
helpful right now. Um, but then all of the, everyone, the person that asked the question will have a whole story behind the question. And I find this really challenging because I know that I'm just throwing things in case they're useful, but it probably won't answer the question. Uh, there's a question from Amos Meacham, uh, who runs uh, Soteria, Vermont. He says, I feel we need to help the general public understand now the similarities they may be feeling, isolation, surrealism to what others feel during normal times. How do we connect with the mainstream mental health public announcements that in the United States are starting to come out so that people can better understand what so many are currently experiencing and feeling? I might answer, if it's okay, with, with a slightly different idea, which is I love that this is an opportunity. I hate that it's an opportunity. It's a bloody crap opportunity, <laughs> if you don't mind my language, because I don't want people to experience this, but it is. Um, but I'm not sure I, in England, can influence the mainstream yeah. messages. But I think social media especially and our friends and ally networks, these are the way forward because each one of us that has an experience of these states or works with people or loves people with these states will have 5, 10, 20 connections who have nothing to do with us who are going through something. If we can connect with them in person and social media and get them to connect with others, mm -hmm. then this is a grassroots sharing uh, of the message, not a public health top-down approach. Um, yeah, I think it's got potential. Yes, I think that's a very good idea, Ray, because I was thinking a lot, a lot about this, that one message is people with mental health problems will have even more problems now, and I really see very different examples, and I, I really thought people should know that, and can we get this to the public? And then I've been talking uh, to a person who is some kind of spiritual leader. Um, and I told him about this and he said, oh, I never thought about that. And, and he understood it quite quickly. And I think he, so the message can spread too. I totally agree with what you say. And, uh, and I'm a bit pissed off because the, the debate seems to be now that coronavirus caused mental health problems, which again make people to as a victims, as we all are, but make a separation. Those are the victims, and we are not the victims in the way that they are. And I think that uh, more or less this is to this is to break up. Why 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 not why not do the opposite? Why not why not introduce that? Please go to the people who have had a long time suffering in their life and ask them how 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 did they survive? Perhaps they could have a good advice to us to give here how to how to manage isolation, how to manage craziness, what is happening in the world, how to manage the terror of dying all the day and so so. And I, but I don't know what are the channels to make this kind of initiative. I have a question that in some way is, uh, follows well on that point, uh, Jaco, um, from Alex Krokodas, um writes, well, I fully share the sentiment and ethical position of needing to engage in open dialogue and not just in the mental health settings. 
I wonder how open dialogue can address the differentials of power within which dialogues unfold, or if you, or if you prefer, within which we are all embedded. This puzzles me and worries me. We are not, we are not in all this crisis, pandemic, or otherwise together. It would be lovely if we were, but we're not. Yako, uh, open dialogue offers us a wonderful new ontology of relatedness. But does it not fail all too systematically to address power differentials? Does it not flatten out power differentials? Um, uh, a little question, of course, very small, and uh, which I could manage with one comment. But uh, of course, it's it's a big question, and also all the time, big questions to ask us in our practice. If we if we really do not the challenge for instance the power as we need to challenge. But at the same time, there is the experience that uh, while not making the challenge, for instance, in open meetings, we all are sitting in the same way, even if we have a, we are in a different position in, in, a, in a power. There is one person who has more power for decisions than other, but not challenging that in some situations seems to make the, the, the dialogues before the decisions much more fruitful and people much more engaged. But of course, there are also situations in which it would be good to challenge the, challenge the power structure, but, uh, but I have not felt a kind of need, for instance, in the meetings that I'm sitting with different persons to make the, make the challenge of the, of the actual power structure. I, again, love that this has come up because I think when I first met this open dialogue approach, um, this issue of every voice is equal in the room was a real painful idea for me, I think, um, because it's that's not been my experience. And even as a practitioner, it's not my experience. As a voice hearer um, practitioner, I carry a lot of power, like double power, more than the professionals in my team. <laughs> Um, because I have this credibility issue. Um, I now live in a house with a garden and enough rooms for me and my family. Um, my experience of this pandemic is so different to someone, well, uh, someone I know who is living with three adults in a one-bedroom flat that's got a lot of mould and is, is really struggling and no garden. Um, so... For me, the mistake we'd make is to, to not just say we're all in this pandemic together, but to say we're having an equal experience of it and that our privileges don't exist. In terms of the work of open dialogue, I think I've been having more conversations with people around this, um, both in training rooms and in gatherings, but also in meetings. Um, I think not so much challenging power, Yako, I think challenging power is a very, I don't, it's, there's complications there. But even naming and being aware of my own power and, and asking questions and being curious about power in the room has been kind of useful. Um, I think it's crazy making when we say it's equal when it really doesn't feel that way. That's my experience. I'm guessing it's something I know I've been talking about with a few people in this virtual room as well yeah it's it's a really 
it's a really live and big debate, and I'm really, I really appreciate the question. And I agree with what you've said. And we've had many discussions on this. I think I was just going to say, I don't know that I've ever really taken the position that every voice is equal in the room, because that clearly isn't really true. I think one of the things I've always tried to lean on is how how is it possible for us as much as possible to hear each voice? And even that is hugely political, in fact, because there's certain voices that are difficult to hear, including voices within oneself. And um, yes, just striving to hear all the voices, I think, is, is in and of itself a political act, actually. Mm-hmm. But it's only a start. Um, I wanted to assure the people that have shared reflections and questions that they will, with your permission, be put up on the website and will be responded to. So if your question doesn't get to be read now, it will be responded to. Thank you for giving them. They're just really wonderful questions. And I think we could have a couple more questions and then we'll go to the reflections. It might be nice for people to know that we can actually see some of the comments coming up as, as I'm speaking, and it feels lovely to read people's thoughts as they're having them. Um, I know I wasn't sure if people knew whether we could see what they were saying or not, so thank you. Uh, back on my, uh, my comment about being overwhelmed, <laughs> there's a lot to pay attention to. Jude, uh, Jude Grofier asks, could panelists give a personal example or personal experience of what open dialogue is and what it means to you? Uh, of course, it's a bit difficult to, to, to know what, what, was, uh, what was the idea in this question, but actually uh, following the discussion that we had about the power and about the voices equal in the meetings, for me, when I'm in a meeting in which I realize that uh, some person is a very very in, in, in a very strong emotions and speaks of some reality that I don't share. He seems to be speaking about some ideas that he hears something. So his voice is much more, much most important for me. And that's a, that's a kind of definitely the idea that I follow. And I can even in those situations uh, do not pay attention so much as said equally to every person because I, I know that for being held for her or for him at the moment, I really need to pay attention fully to, 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 to what he or she is saying here. And then we sometimes manage to have a kind of a more, if not understanding, but more developing some words for, for those ex- extreme experiences that I really feel in my body. And this is my example many times in open dialogues, in meetings, open dialogue. I want to connect to that, Yako. We had a quote in a Hearing Voices network group overseas yesterday, and it was... Um, Open dialogue is about creating dialogue before fixing words. We were talking about these experiences that are different from what you ever experienced before and you don't don't have words for it. And to, to get into dialogue, maybe first of all, also with yourself, but also with the people around, 
before you fix words and say it's this or that, it's some kind of diagnosis, but also it's hearing voices. This is also fixed words and to really be able to, to develop your own descriptions and wrap your own words around what you feel and see and hear or whatever. I would have loved to have that, and I didn't. I connect to that, Andrea, and I think what I was going to say about open dialogue is what it the personal connection for me is it's actually given me a way of working that has allowed me to continue working in public health, mental health services. It's it's given me an opportunity to work in a way that is more ethically aligned with my values, is closer to the care I would have liked to have had when my family were being supported by mental health services or not. Um, and at the risk of sounding really grandiose, um, it's given me, um, it's, it, there's something about the humanity um, of those interactions and being in the dialogue that feels like a huge privilege and um, is really affirming, actually. That's what it's meant for me. You couldn't possibly be as grand as we think of you. I was hesitant to answer this question because it's so big. Um, but the nice thing is that each of you have voiced something slightly different. So I can just voice another thing <laughs> and hope it's enough. For me, um, this open dialogue approach, the difference between that and, and the mainstream approach I've been part of is... The moment where we initially start with it being an individual person's problem and everyone's around to help the person with their problem, that we know what it is. <laughs> Often people come to us knowing what the problem is, as families, as people. Um, and then there's this movement where we don't know what the problem is. We don't know if it's a problem and whose problem it is and what's what's going on. And And it sort of widens out, so we all become together in a way trying to explore, I guess, as, as Andrea said, um, and, and find words for what's going on and trying to be with each other and recognise that we don't know. Um, and it's weird that when we do that, often things happen um, in a more profound way. Um, it's meant me giving up on my clever theories um, and ideas and the really cool things I could say. I, I really hate giving up on those, but... It tends to work better when I do. So I guess it's about humility. We have about seven minutes uh, in which to have reflections. Of course, we're all reflecting all the time. So uh, do we want more questions? Or, and of course, all the questions will be answered to the, you know, we will be answering them uh, afterwards. But um, do we all? I'll, I'll just give my reflection, uh, and this relates to what Andrea said and what you said, Ray, and really what others have said is, I think that uh, my, what comes up for me is the shift, as basically you were just saying, Ray. It's a shift from looking for answers to looking for a way, looking for a way forward. 
I think, you know, within, in any particular group, not who's right or wrong, but how do we live together? How do we, how do we find a future together? That's my reflection. I would like to go on a bit about what Isol said, because for me also it's so important. The idea that uh, in this kind of practice I can be more human than I was before. And, uh, and uh, that is perhaps the most important thing of all. And if we can be more human and if we realize that it's really also helpful, helpful than any other way that I've been involved, it's, it's, a, it's a good outcome. And, and uh, of course, in this situation of the coronavirus in which we are dealing with something that we never, no one of us never have been experiences before. It is, it is one of the most important things. And I, I, I suppose that because of this experience of dialogical practice, we have a, we have a lot to contribute of these uh, dialogue discourses that are taking place in, in the countries, both, of course, for people who are in need for help, but also, also in the more, more, more general dialogue that is happening. And, and one point more is that uh, that, uh, that uh, when we speak about it, it's a very important ethical value, but at the same time we are speaking about the most serious situations in humans' life, in people's life, so that it's not a kind of a thing of enjoy over celebration, but uh, sharing and uh, and sharing in my body all the time. I'm. Uh... <clears throat> Reminded of our lovely late uh, friend, many will know, John Shutter, who uh, liked to say that it's not about deciding what's going on inside the other person, but exploring what we are going on inside together. And that's <clears throat> that's maybe part of this being human, uh, knowing how to stand beside the other person, with the other person, not be overwhelmed of, by that uh, nearness or difference, but be there. Uh, I think that, that for, 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 for me, Open Dialogue has, has been a process of, of both challenging, but particularly addressing the power of individual positions in that togetherness, that, that I cannot decide to be together with the other person. Uh, there's a, a context that we enter together and we have to find a, a way of, of joining in that and releasing or being aware of, of, of how I'm put in a particular power position and, and, and moving away from that if necessary. Uh, or acknowledging it if necessary has has been the uh, I think the the, the the major lessons of of of, of uh, all, all the, my training in, in this theological work. I was going to try and say something wise because you know it feels like it's the wise point of the the session, but I think what's come across to me today in our discussion is. This kind of quiet strength, I think, the quiet strength that is open to others and is, but is just solid. <laughs> um, and I'm thinking about how I want to create more dialogic spaces in my local community 
and the people around me rather than becoming the dialogic practitioner that goes into other communities. There's a space for that and I'll do that. But yeah, I want to find opportunities just to connect in this way with the people in my neighbourhood, which scares me actually. I'm more comfortable going into other settings <laughs> to connect. But yeah, thank you. For me, I think this is really a situation um, of crisis that comes somehow from the outside. And I, I feel it's maybe for the first time really the opportunity to do this, find my own words, what I see, what I feel, what I hear, what I want to change and, and, and to make meaning of it. Um, Yes, and I promise not to let go of this this time. As we are going, we are in Switzerland. We are starting next week to go back to some pieces of normal, and I'm really reluctant to do that somehow. And uh, yes, I really hope to be true to the process that is ahead and behind. Thank you all for being there on the panel, in the chat, and uh, I liked it very much. Well, we, that is our time. I just uh, my my bodily my bodily experiences uh, quite often while each of you spoke, feeling uh, moved to tears when we just for the opportunity to hear you speak. Thank you all so much for sharing yourselves so generously with, with us, with everyone. And we, we, um, this, we're, this, our time is drawing to an end reluctantly. One of the great things about open dialogue is that you can go on and on and on as long as is needed, which would have us staying on here a long time, I think. But, but we will be gathering again with a different panel, um, and that will be being announced on Mad America website. Yeah, but thank you all very, very much, Andrea and Yako and Ray and Richard and Izzo for coming. Mm. I'm loving also reading the, the chats coming up that so much appreciation. We're all reading them. Thank you, everyone that's been listening. Thank you for hosting us and for all the team that has been doing the work in the background of the technology and and Bob and James and Shira and everyone who's made this happen. And Rafaela Pocabello. And an Open Source Foundation who has been funding. And Jessica Pratt of the um, <laughs> of the open of open excellence. I have relished and I'm slightly jealous of the people who are able to focus on the chat stream. I've only saw an aspect of it, but it feels really rich. Mm. Like just as rich as our conversation. And mm. I'm going to love reading that later. So thank you. Mm -hmm. Thank you all, everyone. So thank you so much for listening. Please visit maddenamerica.com to register for upcoming town hall discussions. And wherever you are, stay safe and take care. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views and updates.